namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa bhuttang dhammang sankhang namasami it's easier on the voice so saturday today next to Next weekend on the Saturday, which will be the 15th, I think, yeah, today's the 8th, Ajahn Sachita will be here, he'll be teaching, leading this day, so please do come, he's one of our more eloquent and senior and much loved wise monks, so he's coming from Temple Monastery, and he'll lead the afternoon meditation, and then the following day we have the Upasambhada, the ordination ceremony, Amara Siri and Venerable Siri Medo will be accepted as full bhikkhus. So it's an action-packed weekend, for, for us at least. Well, one of the ways of uh, thinking about the Buddhist teaching is that it's a kind of exploration of wanting and uh, an education around wanting, because uh, if we if we misunderstand wanting, and um, then we pursue avenues driven by wanting, which is not grounded in wisdom and uh, right understanding, then the consequences will be um, not according to dhamma, not according to truth, and will suffer. So. Uh, Sometimes people think that Buddhism says you shouldn't want anything, which is absurd. I, I don't want to be comfortable, I don't want to be warm, and I don't want friendships, I don't want anything, which would be nonsense. So there are, there are aspects of wanting which are quite wholesome and quite skillful. I want to, I want to be peaceful. I, uh, I'm tired of being uh, upset all the time, or I, I want to... Uh, live a life where I'm not confused or there's that kind of wanting. There's a kind of wanting that uh, I'd like to make some furniture. I'd like to cook a meal for someone. Uh, I'd like a car with air conditioning. So there's all manner manner of wanting. So in terms of cultivating a a lifestyle and taking up the Buddhist practice, Wanting to be peaceful is obviously an important kind of wanting and very uh, wholesome kind of wanting, and that's aspiration. We aspire uh, to goodness. We aspire to living in a way which is decent and respectful to ourselves and others. So that kind of wanting, if you didn't have that, uh, you'd probably be a sociopath or something. So that's very wholesome, very skillful. Um, but how do you, how do I fulfill that, wanting to be peaceful or whatever? So, so the Buddha approaches that, of course, by looking at why you're not peaceful and uh, why you're suffering. Because when you're suffering, when there's discontent, when something doesn't work, when things aren't in harmony internally, then you're going to try as much as possible to not suffer. That's the human condition. That's human nature. So as long as we are caught up with modes of discontent which we don't understand, um, 
and we operate in the wrong way. We're always feel frustrated, and we'll always go back to the same question: Why am I suffering? We won't go past that question until we understand and start to function from that understanding. So that that the genius of the Buddha is is to 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 awaken to that question when it arises, not as an abstract an abstract teaching which you sort of read about and believe, but right in the marketplace, right in any situation where where discontent has arisen, you try to awaken to, well, what do I want? What do I want that I have and what do I not want that... What do I want that I don't have and what do I don't want that I do have, right? So say something like pain. Uh, I don't want pain. So I've been... Uh, friend died, uh, when was it, Thursday morning. I've been going to hospice every other day for a while. And uh, she had been sick for a long, long time. And so she died on Thursday morning. And I saw her Wednesday night. And it was very powerful, very powerful to see. And uh, those, you know, the, Buddha, the, the Buddha suggested to take to take things like endpoints, right, and and to take like the contemplation of death, and what would that mean in terms of your spiritual aspiration and in terms of your of your understanding of wanting? Because the pain of death and the, the pain of loss is something you're not you can't really you can't fix that one. You can alleviate it as long as possible, do chemotherapy or. Um, whatever, but inevitably that, that deep loss of someone dying who's a part of your family or you dying and you losing your family um, and the pain that comes, there's, there's, no, there's no way to fix that, there's no compensation, there's no distraction, there's, there's nothing you can do about it when it comes, right? And that, that to me seems a profound spiritual question because then, then it puts into focus uh, what will my attitudes to wanting how or my understanding of wanting how will it play out at the moment of death well how will it play out it seems to me if you understand that then everything else should sort of fit into place because if I can be uh, uh, at peace with dying or at peace with loss of my family um, that would be very, very profound. So one of the things that we we misunderstand about Buddhism is that uh, I think around the word letting go or non-grasping or non-attachment because that language, when you hear it in popular culture, sometimes people misuse that thing. I shouldn't be attached to my children, right? Yeah, so they break their leg and you say, well, that's your problem. Or I shouldn't be attached to, you know, these kind of silly notions of non-attachment. But actually, uh, we are attached to our children, and we are we are embedded in culture and family and so on. So non-grasping or non-attachment, like, is is more about how the mind preoccupies itself with things in a way which is bound up by ignorance and non-understanding. So take take something very simple. Say, you. Um, Let's say someone someone dies in the family, 
and, uh, and then you had an argument with them, like the month before, and and you said something unskillful, horrible, horrible kind of thing, right? And then they die, and then you're left with this a terrible memory of an argument, and then. Now, that memory is there. You can't really do much about it because that's the way memory works. It, it comes into consciousness. So the memory arises. You, you're sitting, you're having breakfast, and the memory comes up of having argued with Uncle Charlie or someone. And then the feeling of that memory is very, very unpleasant. Very, you know, it's really, oh, it's right in, in your bones. And in that moment, what would non-attachment be? Or non-grasping, or letting go? What, what, what would it imply? Well, the way it would work is you wouldn't preoccupy yourself with that memory. And what would preoccupation be with that memory? It would be the continual re-entering into that memory with thought. So, the memory itself, you can't say, I'm never going to have a memory of that argument. Because there it is. It's in the it's in the stream of consciousness. It's been conditioned by, you know, powerful forces, both the argument and then the powerful force of death, which you know then haunts you. It really haunts you. Now, if you thought that uh, letting go was not having that memory, well, what do you do with that? Or if you thought that letting go was just well, I'm not going to think about it, that won't work either. But if you looked at wanting. If you were contemplating wanting, then you'd be more in line with the Four Noble Truths, because letting go is about understanding the wanting and not grasping the wanting. So the, what, would, what would the feeling of wanting be there in that case? Uncle Charlie dies, you had an argument, the memory comes up, the memory is terribly unpleasant. Terribly, terribly unpleasant. It's emotionally very, very unpleasant. And then, what would you do? What would you tend to do if you weren't looking at craving, you would preoccupy your mind with the memory. They shouldn't have done that. Uncle Charlie wasn't that bad. Yeah, but he was actually, he was, no, he was, but yeah, I shouldn't have done that. And he died. Yeah, but, um, and your mind would just continually think, which is a preoccupation with memory. And why is that happening? It's because you don't want that memory. I don't want that experience. I don't want this yucky feeling, this memory. I want something else. So my mind starts to try to get out of the memory through thought. It doesn't work, because the memory is the memory. Whereas if you're, if you're really on the ball with understanding suffering, its cause, which is attachment to craving or wanting, and you, and you say, okay, that's memory, first of all. If you can do that, if you can identify, oh, that's a memory, rather than going to the narr- narrative of Uncle Charlie, that's a big step. Because now you have an objective perspective on memory as a, as a movement in consciousness rather than being a self. The narrative is a self-narrative. Sure, it wasn't, it wasn't his Uncle Charlie, it was my Uncle Charlie. It wasn't his speech, it was my speech, and so on and so forth. But still, you can do that. You can be preoccupied with the self-thinking, I-thinking, my-thinking, or I can say, oh, memory feels like this. Memory of Uncle Charlie feels like this. That's the first step. That's like listening to sound. If you don't do that step, then you're just preoccupied all the time. And in that first step, you begin the process of letting go. 
so then the and we all do that i think like a, a memory or something will come up i would have been angry at someone or someone would have betrayed me or whatever it is and then memory triggers this off or you were looking through the lee valley tool catalog and thinking about a new chisel you're going to get or uh, you know, a new light bulb whatever you want you start memory gets preoccupied with greed or with aversion or with doubt or whatever so memory is a very very important thing to begin to recognize that memory is an object you know when i have a memory of uncle charlie that's actually an object that ar has arisen in consciousness as the sound the changing sound or the feelings in my body it's the same same kind of structure it arises and ceases it comes and goes a cause or according to causes and conditions so what we try to do is then train in, like the, in meditation, these are very simple exercises, just learning to listen to sound as in awareness. Do that a lot, then eventually you have the strength to see, oh, this memory of Uncle Charlie is in awareness. You begin to see awareness is bigger than the story of Uncle Charlie. Attachment or grasping is when you're preoccupied with the Uncle Charlie story and you don't really see it as an object. You become the subject, right? So that's the real nub of non-attachment, non-grasping. It's not that you don't feel memories or that, that you somehow aren't involved with the world. It's just you understand how one way of looking at what the world actually is is this arising and ceasing of perceptions and conceptions and memories and thoughts and ideas. It's coming and going, coming and going, coming and going, coming and going. So the world is the world of time, sure. Uh, I talked with Uncle Charlie last month and we had an argument, true. But also the world is like this memory of Uncle Charlie coming up. And what do I do about that? What do I do about it? Well, if I'm practicing awareness of stream of consciousness, I see, yeah, there's the storyline, yeah, but what is the problem? You begin to educate yourself or take on the Buddha's challenge of, of understanding wanting and not wanting in the stream of consciousness. And then, then your mindfulness is much more clear now. You're, you're not just reacting to these stories and memories and thoughts and all that. You have a kind of... You see it's a kind of like a laboratory that you're learning about wanting and not wanting. You take it on as, okay, what, what, is, what do I want here? I don't want that memory. Okay, I don't want, I wish I hadn't done that. Okay, there's the wanting. I wish I hadn't done that. And then you start to go right to the feeling of wanting. You start to bear witness to, oh, unfulfilled wanting feels this way. Now that's not a trying to fix of anything. It's the ability to endure unfulfilled desire. That's very hard. It's very hard to do. But if you do that, as the memory comes up, it's very, uh, this memory comes up, it's very unpleasant and ugly even, you have to bear witness to like a rotten smell in your mind, right? It's kind of like having a, one of those dead raccoons in your mind. Oh, horrible. And everything in you just wants to close your nose, run away and smell violets or eat ice cream or whatever. No, uh, that's not going to work. No, the memory smells like this. It's just like this. And if you bear witness to it, then you're not engaging with the desire to get rid of the ugly or the nasty or the unbeautiful. 
You're bearing witness to it. And what you're doing is you're strengthening two things. You're strengthening awareness and you're strengthening the capacity to not attach to craving, not attach to desire. And as the desire ceases, right, that memory itself begins to lose its power over you because you say you've known it as a memory, you've been able to endure it, and you've seen the desire not to have it. And so the memory no longer has so much power over you. It'll always be there. It can always be triggered. But intensity gets less and less because you no longer feed it with I thinking or me thinking or my thinking. It's still a memory. Do it the other way. Feel, feel the memory of Charlie and then start to hate yourself. Oh, I'm a hopeless, hopeless, hopeless person, right? What that does to stream of consciousness, it puts more hatred in the mind, more aversion in the mind. You'll probably do that to Uncle Joe in two months' time. Uncle Joe will eventually die, and then you'll have a whole compounded interest. Now, now it will be the memory of Uncle Joe, but your intensity, the argument with Uncle Joe would have been greater, and your grief will be greater. And you, you can see where that can go, roughly, right? So not only is this about Uncle Charlie and a, a, a particular incident in your life, it's about how the stream of consciousness flows, which direction it takes, and which, what is the flow, and how can I nudge it towards more peace? Rather than always trying to get the stream of consciousness to be happy by distracting it or whatever. And, and, and you'll find that when you... When you, when you awaken to the, the feeling of desire and know it as, as an object and bear with it, you know, bear witness to it, not say it's right or wrong, then the cessation of desire is one of the ways we talk about Nibbana or the spiritual life, the ending of desire, which isn't the same as changing the experience to something you like. You know, if I... If I don't like this kind of ice cream, well, then I eat a ham sandwich. That's not the end of desire. It's just another desire. <laughs> it's the substitution, right? And much of consumer culture does that. You feel bored, and what do you do? Rather than watch the wanting not to be bored, you just seek, seek a substitute and keep the mind, you try to keep the mind excited. But to actually witness to boredom, it's hard to do now. There's so many good things on YouTube, right? <laughs> but just to witness to that kind of a mindset and not seek an object, not seek a compensation, just know it takes you to peace. Because your mind is no longer seeking happiness in an object, it's finding refuge in awareness itself, in your real home. That's different. That's different. And it's hard to do because it's not so obvious because in the bearing witness to unfulfilled desire, it's not nice. It doesn't make you happy. But in the cessation of desire, you find true peace. Huh? And that's the ideas around Nibbana or the transcendent or the unconditioned and so on. This is the idea around it. So if we are, if we are investigating the kind of like stream of consciousness and we're watching how things operate, we have the desire to, like we have social desires and we have responsibilities within those social desires. So I want to, 
live in a monastery where there is harmony and where we relate with each other in a compassionate way. Well, so we have we have guidelines, you know, the way we speak to each other and we don't kill animals and we don't steal each other's books or whatever we do. If we steal each other's robes, it'd be the same thing, so we don't get into that very much. But So there's a kind of social ethic, but quite often, obviously, in a monastery, even though I would like to love everyone and, you know, like them all the time, sure enough, what comes up is sometimes you don't like someone. I don't, you know, this person just irritates me, or this person gets up my nose, or I can't figure them out, they kind of confuse me. Now that just arises. I don't, I don't... uh, predict that. I might predict it after a while. I see that's a pattern, but I don't ask for it. I don't I don't will it. I don't intentionally say I'm going to dislike this fellow or whatever. But that happens. So what arises in consciousness is dislike. Uh, resistance. Um, um, whatever way that might be. Uh, criticism. Uh, um, making fun of them, all kinds of things can come up. You're ridiculous, you're a ridiculous human being, you, or whatever. These things come up into the mind. What's the problem? Is, is that a problem? Well, it's, if it's a problem, all of nature is a problem, because it's natural. There's nothing unnatural about that. But what would attachment be? Huh? What would grasping be? An attachment would be the preoccupation with that particular uh, annoyance at this person or resistance to the, or anger at the person. And what would preoccupation be? It would be the engagement with that feeling of annoyance with thought. So someone does something in the monastery which is not against the rules, but it's against my aesthetic preferences, right? And they do that, and I notice it. And what happens? If I'm aware, oh, oh this is annoyance, and I go to the feeling of wanting them to be different. Now, if you were different, I wouldn't feel annoyed. This is not a good strategy. (laughs) But if I notice that I want you to be different, oh, that's the wanting, and I hold to that wanting, I notice it, then eventually that wanting ceases and that's neutral. That takes a lot of mindfulness. But if the person... And again, this isn't against the rules. I'm not saying like a person is sloppy and we don't say, you, sh- you know, try not to be sloppy, but it's just in the course of aesthetics, say. So then the person comes in and I feel annoyed and I engage with that annoyance. What do I do? I start to focus on what they're doing, their behavior, all the time. And so they did it again. Yep, th- that's it. And so I start to pick up on the annoying characteristic, and I preoccupy my mind with them. So it's no longer Sam. It's Sam's way of sucking his teeth. Or (laughs) whatever he wants. And it's it's no longer Sam the human being. It's Sam the tooth sucker. (laughs) And there he goes again. He did it again. Look at that. That's a perception which I then hold. And I'm preoccupied. Sam drives me out of the monastery. Can't do it. I can't live here anymore. <laughs> but <laughs> if I'm actually noticing, what is it? What do I want now? I want Sam not to do that. Eventually, I could 
you know, when, when could I say to him, stop sucking your teeth? When I came to neutrality. When I came to neutrality, I could go to Sam and say, Sam, is there any chance you're changing your habit a bit for me? That would be a good discussion. But if you said, Sam, will you stop it? I'd come out with a whole bunch of anger, which I built up over the last four weeks. And poor old Sam, he hasn't got an idea where I'm coming from. That's attachment. But non-attachment doesn't mean that I don't feel annoyance. And that's the mistake people make about Buddhism. They think somehow you become, you know, because I'm a Buddhist, I become some kind of unfeeling cabbage. (laughs) You know, has no emotions or nothing. Well, that's not, (laughs) it's not life. We do feel, right? So this, I find, you know, rather than use the word non-attachment or non-grasping, I find much, much more uh, helpful for my own practice, non-preoccupation. You know, that's something I can see that, that sure, annoyances and likes and dislikes come up. And, oh, don't preoccupy. Know that this is in awareness. So I use that, that strategy a lot. So I, I, I do this in meditation, obviously. And throughout the day, I'll just say, oh, this experience is in awareness. Constantly, in awareness. This is in awareness. So my reference, my, my go-to place, say, rather than being uh, the preoccupation of thinking, becomes more and more the preoccupation, not preoccupation, or the noticing of space. Because when I say this is in awareness, what I'm, no- I'm noticing conscious space, say, as a way of talking. Yeah, this is in awareness. And space can contain everything. Conscious space can contain everything. There's nothing that's excluded, right? So if that becomes the, the I would say, the wholesome habit of, of attention, constant letting go, and that's what I see as letting go, then when the mind gets preoccupied with Charlie, Uncle Charlie, or the Tootsuck, or whoever you want, I can see, oh, that's grasping. That's grasping. And then, not without saying, oh, you shouldn't be doing that, because that's just another preoccupation. You know, if I'm annoyed at someone, and then I'm annoyed at myself, it's the same preoccupation, it's endless. Or if I'm annoyed at someone, and then I, then I, you know, I, I just eat a sandwich, it's still preoccupation with an object, it's not a refuge. And then another one, another one. But if I just notice that annoyance is in awareness, then I'm not saying the annoyance is right or wrong, but I'm not believing in it. I'm finding a refuge that is always there and uh, always available. It's just I have to remember to be available to space rather than be preoccupied with objects, the objects of thought, the objects of memory, the objects of emotion, and so on. And this is a very um, simple way, but it takes a lot. I think I, it takes a lot of consistency and reminding throughout the day. It's a kind of twenty-four-seven practice that you can do. Um, that that you because because the the default mechanisms of of, of most of us, when we come into this, are thought, intellection, analysis, judgment. Because we're, you know, we're trained to be, uh, we're, tra- are, we're trained, we're intellectuals, we're trained to think and to analyze and to solve problems in that way, which is okay, nothing wrong with that. But the, the, the kind of liberation that the Buddha's talking about is not in an object itself. You don't find liberation in thought or emotion or in the body or in a social experience or in a taste, or a sound, or a sight, or a, 
or a, a, a physically exciting experience. There's no, there's no liberation in that. There can be happiness or unhappiness, but there's no liberation. Where you find liberation is in the non-grasping or the non-attachment with this movement that goes through consciousness. So maybe you might try that, like just like when your mind is preoccupied, just say non-preoccupation. What would that do for you? As opposed to going to that terrible tendency just to judge yourself and to feel self-critical and then just go back to criticizing the other. That, that doesn't work because it's still preoccupation. I think, I think our Western uh, tendency towards analysis is unfortunately, it, it has its, its uses, it's had its uses, but unfortunately it goes a lot to an, a constant preoccupation. You know, I've got a, I've got a Uncle Charlie problem, you know, and I just, I shouldn't, I, I shouldn't be thinking so much about Uncle Charlie. I've got a real problem with this. And that's just preoccupation. It's the same thing. Right? It's still, it's not, whereas this is like, it's not, it's, it's not denying. It's just, yeah, and there's space. So if, if I have to make amends and I have to say I apologize and I'm sorry or make restitution for things, you know, hurtful things I've done, that's fine. And that's being, you know, a, 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 a decent human being. But letting go isn't about that. It's not a social philosophy, you know. It's not about that. Social philosophy, like Ajahn Chah, he would say, uh, attached to their rules. They really learn these rules as a monk, really attach to them, figure them out, so that you can let go. Very interesting, isn't it? Right. So, so the responsibilities we have as human beings, yeah, we, we it, like it's not right to say, well, I'm too attached to the first precept, so I'm gonna, you know, shoot a deer tomorrow. <laughs> you're too attached to precepts; it'd be absurd, wouldn't it? Or, you know, you're too attached to not stealing, so why don't you just steal something? It's absurd. So, yeah, we make a commitment to goodness. We make a commitment to whatever response we have. But in the flow of consciousness, where do we find peace? How is it that we can realize peace? And the exploration is through wanting and the non-grasping of wanting. And, as you under, and that's very subtle around a lot of things. Um, so what you'll find sometimes is just like these habits that may be a habit of feeling hurt by something or cheated by life or, or resentful of something. And it'll just keep coming up all the time. And you'll think you have a resentment problem or whatever problem, but you don't. It's just, it's just the mind doing its thing. So non-grasping is not even trying to be not, 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 not resentful, right? It's, it's, it's not trying to take its opposite. So more and more you say, oh, this is just a feeling of, yeah, well, yeah I feel really resentful today. <laughs> you say that to yourself and it's wonderful freedom. Rather than, oh, gosh, 45 years I feel these resentments and man, this, you know, I just got to get my act together. More metta bhavana. That's preoccupation. It just goes ad nauseum. But to just kind of like say, wow, I really would like to strangle that monk. <laughs> Not do it. And not make it a problem. So the not doing is important, please. <laughs> so we have precepts, we have moral boundaries, and so on and so forth. But this tendency of like self-idealism and purity and all of that just gets into this horrible preoccupation. 
So when, when these habits come up of feeling jealous about something, resentful, just just go, yeah, wow, this is I'm really feel jealous of that person. Look at that. You know, and it's not a problem, it's just jealousy. Whereas the kind of goody good mindset, be a good Buddhist, is a kind of dualism where only the sweet, sweet, lovely <laughs> inspiring things are appropriate and everything else is not appropriate. But that's not Buddhism. That's idealism. And that's not nature. Nature is dualistic. It has these dark sides and light sides. And that's all right. So we have precepts. We have morality. We have responsibility. And then we have the flow of consciousness. And then we get back to Lompo Semedo's constant refrain is that it all belongs. That doesn't mean I condone activity, which is wrong. But just, yeah, feelings of jealousy are a part of nature. They belong in awareness. And the more you do that, you'll find that you, 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 you don't have to fix it. It'll fix itself. Don't worry, it'll go. It's not permanent. It'll fix it. And, and, and if you have confidence in that, you start to get quite a lot of happiness because you realize you don't have to be perfect because you're none of it. It's not that you can be perfect. Perfection is not a human being because uh, you know the way consciousness works, it comes and goes. But where perfection really lies is an awareness of change. And that's not an emotional input uh, uh, experience. It's more, it's, I get it. I mean, we use this word transcendence, right? It's a difficult word or, or liberation or whatever. So perfection in terms of feeling jealousy would say, well, jealousy feels like this. That's perfection. Idealism would say I shouldn't feel jealous. And stupidity would believe in a jealousy. <laughs> you know, those are the two extremes you can follow. And that's very freeing, isn't it, from a kind of idealist mindset of what's perfect and what I should be. All right, I'll leave that for your reflection.